The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, if you will take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 6, we return today to our study of Christian warfare, and this message will conclude our series in the same way that Paul concluded his instructions to the church at Ephesus in the first century. Our great adversary has not changed in all of that time, and the way that we fight him has not changed. Now, Ephesians, this entire book has been one of my favorite studies in the, in the New Testament. I love Romans, and we had been studying that before we had to get out of church. But I love Romans because of its broad sweep of doctrine and then its instructions for practical Christian living. And the information in that book is spread out over what is now 16 chapters. But Ephesians is also a book of great doctrine and practical Christian living. Only here the apostle condensed his material into a short letter that is divided into six chapters. And my great love for these two epistles stems from my interest in the doctrines of grace. And these are doctrines that exalt the Lord our God and magnify his sovereign grace and its power over all his creation. And I feel sorry for those that misunderstand these doctrines because they miss comforting satisfaction of the supreme hope that is not found in any other view of God. And there is no reason that we should find any more hope in any other view of God because this is the truth of the scripture. And there is nothing that will bless us and bring us into a closer relationship with the Lord than to understand truth. And nothing but the doctrines of grace make us completely dependent upon God for our salvation and our security. Our salvation is none of us and all of God. Oh, in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul brought this truth to the forefront as he wrote that, that God deals with sinners according to his good pleasure and his divine purposes. And he says that whatever we are or we will be is according to God's predestination in conjunction with the counsel of his own will. And further, Paul wrote that God's will was determined before he created the world. And so he effectively removes any argument that in any way it's dependent on us. It's not by what we do or would do. It's not because God foresaw faith in us or any good thing, but that he determined within himself and he gave every good gift to that is needed to make us trophies of his grace. Now, James corroborates this in his epistle in the first chapter, verse 17, where he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, in Ephesians, Paul tells us the medium by which we receive these good gifts. And this is in chapter 1, verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So every good gift that we receive, everything that we need to see God and to be holy and to be without blame, comes to us through Jesus Christ. And why did God do it this way? Well, it was for his glory. It was for the praise of his glory. We are made objects of his mercy and grace that all glory should go to the Father through Jesus Christ. Now, this reason is reiterated in another way in chapter 2 of Ephesians, where Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. Our faith, our salvation, our perseverance... We're all by the grace of God, and that excludes boasting, which all of us are prone to do. 
Now, as we think again of Christian warfare in the sixth chapter, the apostle tells us to take on the armor of God. We are to put on the whole armor of God, which he summarizes in six necessary pieces that form our defense a protection against the powers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And if I might remind you again of these, he wrote in chapter six. In verses 10 through 17, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The apostle tells us that we are to take the complete armor, the ten panoplyan, that is the panoply of God, which is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And by these, he says, you will stand, you will withstand the powers of darkness. And then, lest we have forgotten the source and the power of these weapons, he says in verse number 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The armor is used in the power of the spirit. Now, while we wear these, we must always be connected to the power source. And the power is the Holy Spirit of God who guides the warfare. This is the spirit of Christ who is our commander and chief. And so we come to the end of this epistle and the apostle doesn't stray far from the first thoughts in the first chapter that we are nothing in ourselves, that we do nothing by ourselves. God redeemed a helpless people for his glory. And to achieve his objective of receiving all glory, God himself must provide the power to make it happen. We are useless without the power of God. Now, once again, then, we see the apostles' exaltation of God. Before the foundation of the world, God predetermined the fact of his glorification and he predestined the method by which it is accomplished. He superintends the warfare of this present life to present us holy, where in the end we shall be like Christ. And so as God is glorified in our salvation, so shall we be elevated to glory. And thus we say that Christian warfare is the battle for the sanctification of the soul. God will sanctify and glorify his people. And the apostle does not let us wander away from that point. And so if we are to be successful, the means is the power of God. And we are connected to the power of God through prayer. Prayer acknowledges that we are without power unless God supplies it. So, in effect, the apostle ends the epistle in the same way that he started. Salvation is all of God. We are predestined to salvation for the glory of God. We are saved from the penalty of sin in our justification by the power of God. We are being saved from sin's dominion in our sanctification by the power of God. And we will be saved from the presence of sin when we are glorified and this, too, is by the power of God. And that, folks, is the doctrine of God's grace. Now, I love Ephesians because I believe that I have been ordained to call God's people back to the truth of his word. 
These are doctrines that our forefathers taught since Christ, since the apostles. These have been taught for centuries, but through weakness of the flesh and a desire to give some part of salvation to our will, these doctrines were pushed down and wrongfully rejected. But Ephesians bears these out from start to finish, from chapter 1 to chapter 6. Just as our salvation is all from start to finish of God, this is the way that Paul presents our salvation and our security and our glorification. And so the apostle ends this letter telling the church that these weapons of warfare must be bathed in prayer, asking God to supply the power to make them effective. Now, you'll notice that I've titled the message, Prayer Warriors. To prevail over the enemy, we must go to war. We must engage the battle in the power of prayer. Now, every believer is a soldier in God's army. And we can do our best to be good soldiers and be ready to march in the power of the Spirit. Or we can be poor soldiers without ability to fight and no means to prevail. Well, let me add that I... I have no secrets to reveal in this message. This is uncomplicated. The metaphors of war and fighting need not overwhelm us so that we don't understand what the apostle tells us to do. No, this warfare is just ordinary Christian life. You're living it now. And it's not as if someday you'll need this information because you'll meet the enemy. No, I can assure you, and you know this, the enemy is in your house. He is in your mind. He is distracting you at this very moment, trying to snatch the word of God from you. And so you may have your Bible, the sword of the spirit in your lap. You have the breastplate of righteousness strapped on. You are bathed in the righteousness of Christ. You may have your shield of faith that's held up high. And still, the devil will penetrate if you're not connected to the power of God. And so the apostle says, put on the armor with prayer. Prayer is the connection. Prayer is the valet that dresses you for warfare. Now, if you'll look again at verse 18, this is the, the type of verse that a preacher loves. You say, well, why is that? Well, because it forms its own outline. Now, we can look here at Paul's use of the word all. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So let's use this verse as the outline for the sermon today. First, we would observe the time of prayer. When are you to pray? Well, I believe the when of prayer is an indication of its necessity. The apostle says praying always. Now, several times I've been asked, it's not an uncommon question for people to ask, what does the Bible mean when it says that we are to always pray. Well, obviously, it can't mean that every moment of the day or night, you must bow your head and get down on your knees and assume a posture of prayer. Now, if you spent every waking moment in that kind of prayer, then you'd never get anything done. And eventually you would starve to death. And I'm sure that you want me to be a man of prayer. But when you come into the church on Sunday morning, you would probably like for me to come out of the office and greet you. And the more spiritual among you might even like to hear a sermon. Now, if praying always or praying without ceasing, as it's put in other places, meant that you must consciously and formally talk with God all of the time, then there would neither be time for working, for sleeping, preaching or any of our daily activities. And even Jesus didn't do that. He prayed more than anyone. I mean, he prayed so long that his disciples fell asleep. They couldn't keep up with him. But Jesus certainly did more than spend all of his time formally praying to his father. No, as he did many other things, though, he was always conscious of his connection with God. And this is what this means. Praying always is that special awareness of God. It means to consider God in all that we do, every step, every motive, every action. Uh, once when witnessing to 
a man in my office, he, he asked me, how could he overcome his many temptations? And he said, once you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, how do you use that to overcome temptation? And that was a great question. And I told him, when you're tempted, at that very moment, you can take that temptation to God in prayer. And you can say, what do I do? What would you have me to do? And then God will speak through his spirit to show you what to do. Now, Christians need to continually wear their armor because the devil is always lurking. And believing God in prayer is what makes that shield of faith effective in knocking down the devil's fiery darts. Now, listen to the promise that God made to the Corinthians. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 10. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now, that is an unfailing promise from God's word. How does God make these ways of escape? Well, you recognize them. You, you recognize them when your mind is in tune with God and God impresses you with them when you're willing to listen and take the doors that he opens. But it is also true that we need formal times of prayer. We do need these times of concentrated, direct communication when we have time that's set apart to spend with God and to speak with him, praying always also includes those times. Now, the point to remember here, though, is that this warfare is unceasing and you have this always on connection with God. And wearing your armor correctly is when your mind is in tune with God. So the first all that we see in our text tells us when we are to pray. Every waking moment, we are connected to God. And if I might make this comment as well, if our minds are filled with thoughts of God, if they're filled with those in the daytime, then it's way far more likely that our dreams at night when we sleep will be filled more with good things of God. Now, secondly, this passage informs us of the types of prayer Praying always with all prayer. In Luke 11, that we read earlier, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Now, he didn't say, okay, here, here's the first thing that you do. Put your hands together like this. Get down on your knees. Bow your head. Close your eyes and begin to speak. If you get a chance to visit my office... And most people don't go there unless they're in trouble. But whether you're in trouble, whether you've been good or bad, and you visit my office, I have this 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 neat picture of Benjamin and Samuel uh, Samuel Petro on on uh, on the wall. This is from years ago when they were little boys. Now they're big boys now, and I've watched them as they've grown up on the front row of the church. And in this picture, there's a Bible on the table. And Samuel has his head bowed, his eyes are closed, and he looks like he's deep in prayer. Benjamin has his head bowed, but he's peeking at the camera. Now, I need to ask his parents if that was any indication that he would develop a penchant for selfies. But if Jesus gave particular instructions like this, here is the proper posture of prayer, this is the way that you must do it, well, then we would say, well, Samuel is godly, he passes the test, but Benjamin, he's got a little bit of the devil in him, he fails. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't concentrate on what you do with your body when you pray. And so sometimes we see Jesus prayed when he was standing, sometimes he was sitting, sometimes kneeling, those who understand the Jewish culture of the time say that when they prayed at the Last Supper, that Jesus was reclining on his side. And so da Vinci had the painting wrong. Sometimes he was prostrate on the ground. And so when I say types of prayers, I don't mean kneeling prayers or standing prayers or sitting prayers. No, there are various types of prayers. There are prayers like private talks with God. There are closet prayers when you are alone and you pour out your heart to God. The presence of God is felt and it envelops you. 
There are public prayers. When someone leads and you pray along silently. Or you may be the one who's leading the prayer. These are prayers that help and uh, edify and encourage others. And then, of course, there are the silent prayers when you don't say anything vocally. But that prayer takes place in your mind. So there are various kinds of prayers that can be used. And proper prayers always put us in touch with God. Now, what God doesn't want is for you to use repetitious prayers and prescribed prayers I remember years ago reading a commentator who said that he despised written prayers. He felt that they were too formal. And he said, usually they're used to impress others rather than to speak to God. Now, in many churches, uh, they use a liturgy. That simply means a prescribed form of worship. And, and often they, they use formalized, ritualized prayers Roman Catholics do this. They use chanting and response type prayers. And many times that has nothing at all to being uh, to being in touch with God or pleading with God or worshiping God. It's just the ritual that you go through. It's just the, the, the rote that makes people feel religious. Well, God's not interested in those kinds of prayers. Now, the type of prayer that he wants is one that cries out to God from the depths of the heart, like the publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so we come to God recognizing reverence for him, recognizing his presence, understanding who we are and who God is. Then also the types of prayers include what you ask for. Prayers should include thanksgiving. They should include acknowledgement of God's holiness, his righteousness. Prayer should adore God and you should pray for yourself and for others. Now, here the text says to pray for all saints. Now, that doesn't mean those that have died and gone to heaven. It means living believers, ones who serve in the same army as you, no matter where they are in the world. And so this would include our missionaries throughout the world. And our missionaries often ask us, ask us to pray for them because they know the distance between us and them. That's not a barrier to God hearing and responding. But especially a Christian should pray for his regiment. That is for the saints that are in his church. We must pray for those that we worship with, those we labor with. We are interdependent. And the enemy of the church is the enemy of each individual. And so we must pray together for uniform protection. Sometimes Christians get mixed up and they never pray for themselves and they always pray for others. And then there are some others that get mixed up and they always pray for others or always pray for themselves and never pray for others. Well, all saints here includes you and others. You need prayers for strength and so do they. And then as you pray for yourself and others, that prayer should be primarily for spiritual needs. Now, it is okay to pray for physical needs, but spiritual needs are primary. Things like forgiveness, forgiving others, overcoming temptation, being a better example, a better testimony, a witness. Those should be primary because Jesus said, The father already knows the other things that you have need of, and he takes care of those material needs. Now, when you concentrate mainly on the spiritual and for righteousness, he said, all these other things will be added to you. Well, I'm not saying that you never pray for material blessings because those are needed and they can be and should be used for the glory of God. Now, thirdly, in our passage we see the temperament of prayer. Again, in verse number 18, praying always and watching thereunto with all perseverance. Our temperament in prayer is persistence. And I dare say it is insistence. It is relentless. Now, Jesus taught the persistence of prayer in that passage of Luke 11. When the disciples asked him to teach them to pray, He illustrated with a parable. Now, I want us to go back to Luke 11 and look at this. It comes after the model prayer, which, by the way, was not intended for liturgy and much less that we would be given absolution for sin by saying so many our fathers. 
But after the model prayer, Jesus illustrated insistent, persistent prayer. Beginning in verse 5 of Luke 11, he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is in his journey, has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Now, this is a friend who is in need. And so he goes to a neighbor at a late hour when everyone is in bed and they don't want to be bothered. Now, the neighbor shoes or tries to shoo the one who is in need away. And he says, come back tomorrow. But the needy friend is insistent, so he keeps on knocking, he keeps asking, and then to shut him up, the neighborly friend gets what he wants, opens the door, and gives it to him. And why did he give it? Well, because he can't sleep with this guy continually knocking on his door. Everybody in the house is awake anyway, and so he gets rid of the man by giving him what he wants. Now, friendship wasn't the reason that this man got what he wanted, it was his persistence that's the reason and this is the way that God says that we must come to him now understand that this parable does not mean that God is annoyed when we ask and he just gives to us to shut us up I mean we are incapable of bothering God and he doesn't answer just because we are insistent now the parable teaches when you go all the way through it that you are God's child That he loves you and he will give you what you need, but you must ask. And you must respect God's timing. You must not be discouraged when what you want doesn't come immediately. You are to believe for it and you are to keep asking for it. And he says if a neighbor would get up to help a stranded friend, I mean, here's the reasoning. How much more will God help you? Now, let me relate this to God's sovereignty. His purpose In choosing you for salvation is to bring glory to him. And so God will give you everything you need to glorify him. And those things come to you through the means of prayer. Success in your life is a demonstration of God's power. And that causes his name to be glorified in the earth. So why would God withhold from you? He won't. Romans 8.32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So this, this is illogical, illogical that God would be miserly. He isn't. He is abundant in mercy and grace. And giving to you produces glory for him. Now notice in our text that Paul uses the word supplication. To supplicate means to ask, but it's deeper than just asking. It means to ask of someone who is in authority. When you supplicate God, you recognize his authority. Now, many Christians are insistent in prayer, but they're angry when God doesn't move and doesn't do things exactly like they want. But supplication, this is a word that tells us that we must understand it is God who's in control. He is sovereign. He is higher in authority. And whatever way he answers is always the right way. And that's the key to dealing with the unpleasant things of life. God is in control. He is working for your good, even though you don't always understand how at the time. And so if you go through something that's difficult and you prayed about it and it doesn't happen the way that you want, you understand God is sovereign and you accept that because the perfect God never makes mistakes. When Job lost his health, his wealth, his family, his wife told him to curse God. And Job said, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall not we not receive evil? In all this did Job not sin with his lips. Now this is recognition that God does all things well, whatever it is. Now be insistent when you pray. Be persistent and persevere. But always accept the answer you want, the answer you don't want, or even no answer at all. 
See, when God doesn't answer by your will, that does not mean God doesn't hear. Now, number four is the transporter of prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. You've probably heard people talk about praying in the spirit and they attach an unbiblical meaning to it. Now, they think that this refers to some some special type of prayer language, a language that comes from the supernatural world. It's not understood by the natural mind. Only God can understand it. In Romans 8, 26, Paul speaks of the spirit making intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And there are different opinions about whether that refers to the spirit that is groaning. Does that refer to the Christian groaning? But whichever, it does not imply that there's any sort of special prayer language. Praying in the spirit does not mean an ecstatic prayer language that's prayed by those who have a special gift of the Holy Spirit. No, all Christians have the spirit in the same measure. It means that you must pray mutually with the spirit, meaning that you are in the will of the spirit, that you don't pray previously. You don't pray repetitiously. You don't pray with formalism just to impress those who hear. Now, Jesus said the Pharisees are like this. They pray long prayers for pretense. He said heathens love long prayers because they think they will be heard for much speaking. Those are not prayers in the spirit. They have nothing to do with seeking God's will. And so I think here the apostle is telling us that praying in the spirit involves the proper prescription for prayer. That's what we find in Luke 11. It agrees with God's instructions. Jesus said that we are to pray and ask in his name. We are to pray for his sake because it is upon the merits of Christ's work for us that we can speak with God. Prayer is addressed to God the Father, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's carried into the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. A prayer that mentions neither the Father or the Son is not a Christian prayer. So we pray as the Spirit directs. It's through to the Father, through Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says the Spirit helps our infirmities. He guides us in what to pray and how to ask. Now, I remember as a child, we often had prayer meetings at our country church. A group of old farmers would get together and pray. And they weren't Bible scholars. They weren't theologians. Before revival meetings, we would always have a full week of prayer every night. The men came, went one way. The ladies went another. And they would pour out their hearts to God. And they could feel the presence of the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit doesn't mean your spirit. It means the Holy Spirit. Pray in concert with the Holy Spirit. And he directs that prayer to the Father in the name of Jesus. Now, finally, I want to say that I very much appreciate Paul's request in verses 19 and 20. In verse 19 and 20. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, in these verses, he encourages prayer for him. He is their teacher. And so lastly, I want to speak of the teacher in prayer. Paul asked them to pray for him. Well, he, he he's the apostle. He's the teacher. He wrote powerful doctrine that is so deep that people for centuries have argued over his meaning hundreds perhaps even thousands of books have been written to explain his doctrine but despite that theological acumen paul said i need prayer as much as he knew and as great an apostle as he was he was fully aware that the Christian armor must be his armor too. And he must put on his armor with prayer. And when people prayed for all saints, he says, don't forget about me. Pray for me too. And I have the same desire because I know my weaknesses. And you should know that the pastor is at the top of Satan's agenda. He will, he, he'll do everything he can to destroy the minister of the word. And too often he is successful because the pastor is not sufficiently guarded by his congregation to pray for him. Recently, I, 
I wrote to a member of our church and I asked for prayer. And I, I, I chose this family specifically because I know that down through the years, they have been prayer warriors. And I told them this. Now, I, w- I want to tell you that if you didn't get a letter from me, don't think that I that I, I'm saying that you're not a prayer warrior. It, ju- it just happened that I was already interacting with these folks and it was a good time to ask for their help. Prayer or Paul needed prayer warriors to pray for him because the weight of his ministry was exceedingly heavy. Now, I don't pretend to know and experience anything like what Paul went through, but I do feel that weightiness of the responsibility, and I need your prayers. And that need has never been more acute than it has in this past year. Now, let me show you three requests that Paul asked them to pray about. The first is communication. He says that utterance may be given unto me. Now, notice what he doesn't ask. He was in prison when he wrote this. He didn't pray or say, pray for me that I will get out of prison. He was sick when he wrote this. He described it in in, uh, Corinthians as a thorn in the flesh. He didn't say, pray for my healing. Now, just to give you an idea of how Paul put God's will above his will, he said in Philippians that, His imprisonment had worked out well. It gave him the opportunity to witness in places where he wouldn't otherwise be able to. He was able to witness in Caesar's household. He couldn't have that opportunity any other way, except he was in prison. In 2 Corinthians, he said this thorn in the flesh was an opportunity for God to show his grace and that no matter what he endured, God's grace was always enough for his trials. And here is another remarkable aspect of the apostle's character. He wanted them to pray for him, but his request was so that he could be a blessing to others. He asked for prayer that he would have utterance, that is, the ability to preach to others and be effective in his communications. Well, that that that's important. And it does make sense when you read Paul's own assessment of his preaching ability. He admitted that others said his speech was contemptible. And that probably wasn't only their estimation of the content of what he preached, but also his delivery. Now, before I preach, I almost always ask the Lord to make me articulate. Let me speak well. And you're the judge of whether God answers those prayers. When we read Paul, I mean, we we get into our mind, we we think this, what a logical brain, how intelligent he is, how well-versed in the Scripture, how astounding in his knowledge. And with that, you think, how articulate, how well-spoken. Well, you could leave the last part out because he was neither. His speech was so poor that he was afraid that his inability to speak would hinder the cause of Christ. Paul was not an orator. Apollos, that was, he was the golden-throated orator. When Paul spoke, he said his speech is contemptible. They meant the way that he speaks. It's not pleasing to the ears. He is not like Apollos. Well, this was a problem for Paul when competing for attention among the great Greek and Roman orators. These are people, the ones, these Gentiles are people who prize good oratory. And here is Paul, and he has this strange message, a hard message to believe, and it's spoken poorly. So what chance does he have? And you know, in many Baptist churches, they would say, fat chance. Why? Because they believe that salvation is by chance. They believe that salvation is in the presentation. Be crafty when you give an invitation. Then you'll have a better chance. Well, thank the Lord, this is not skeet shooting. It's not throwing rings around bottles at the fair. This is not chance at all. It's the Holy Spirit who works and convicts and saves. And friends, that is an essential element of the doctrines of grace. And when Paul asked for utterance, he wanted to speak well. He wanted to communicate well. He didn't want Satan to use his inabilities to keep blind sinners in the dark. But he wasn't worried about chances. Despite his speech problems, people were saved. And Paul was the greatest missionary of all time. Why? Because he knew that God would accomplish with his word what he intended to do with it. The power 
is in God, not in us. And we are connected to that power through prayer. Now, next, he asks for confidence that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, he wanted the courage to speak the truth, no matter the consequences. He wanted confidence that he need not be concerned about the gospel's offense. And this gospel that we preach is very offensive to people. Oh, Paul was human and often the consequences were grave. Read 2 Corinthians 11 and you see what he went through for preaching. And how well would you do? How well would you do if you thought, as soon as the message is over, they're going to stone me? How hard would it be knowing that your accommodations for the night after you preach would probably be a jail cell? Well, that'd be hard for me to speak freely with that in the back of my mind. Well, preachers today are afraid of persecution, but in a much different way. And preachers want to be diplomatic because they want to be liked. They don't want to be ostracized by liberal thinkers. And they don't want to be too dogmatic with the scriptures. And so they inject their caveats. They make their apologies just in case someone is offended. And so they would much rather say, put on your smiley sticker because God loves you than to say, unless ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. They would rather give a speech on global warming or social justice or critical race theory than to preach, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Too many ministers suffer under Isaiah's complaint. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. But not Paul. He wanted boldness to preach without intimidation. Boldness to preach without qualification. If the truth hurts, then hurts people, hurt people as much as you can. Hurt them until they realize they haven't seen anything yet. Better to hurt people with the truth now than for them to suffer eternity in hell. And then he asked them to pray for correctness. He said that I may open my mouth boldly for the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, I believe that this means that a minister of the gospel is obligated to speak with courage. He ought to speak without timidity, not be afraid of the consequences. And so there are many expositors who say that this verse is a repetition of verse 19. But if I might make another point that is also taught in Scripture, a minister of the gospel, a pastor of the church has a frightening responsibility. The Bible teaches that I will be held accountable for what I preach. I have a weight of responsibility that keeps me from being lazy and unprepared to preach any sermon when I stand in the pulpit. Now, I don't ask for sympathy from people. I I do hope you understand, though, what it takes to preach a message. I hope that you would appreciate the effort that goes in, and I don't want to come unprepared. Now, sometimes it might not sound like it's prepared, But I am frightened to get up here and speak without earnestly spending the necessary time to prepare. I want to be correct because I understand the consequences of what I do. And so Paul's teachings would certainly support that to speak as I ought to speak means to speak correctly. To speak correctly is to speak truth, not only without fear, but without compromise. I think that he would support That speaking correctly means to speak in love, but at the same time speak forcefully. It is to rebuke emphatically, but with compassion, care, and concern. It is to speak confidently, but not arrogantly. Solomon wrote, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. And that's what a preacher needs. He needs to speak words fitly, words correctly. And when the Holy Spirit takes those words and they are convicting, they become precious to the hearer and they yield the peaceable peaceable fruits of righteousness. Well, I want to close the message with this thought. I recently 
read a transcript of one of John Piper's comments on his Desiring God program. And he was asked a question about the Lord's Supper. A listener remarked that the pastor of his church was considering letting unbelievers partake in the Lord's Supper. And the the listener wanted to know what happens when an unbeliever participates in the elements of the supper. Now, I haven't time to relate his entire answer. All of it was exceptionally good. But I can tell you that Piper went ballistic and he pulled no punches that a pastor who would do such a thing was depending on his own wisdom, not the authority of Scripture. And he said if the pastor teaches such things, it would be a good idea to get out of that church. Now, the pastor of this man's church contended that the Lord's Supper is an evangelistic tool. And if they let unbelievers participate, it would lead them to Christ. And I suppose that's great worldly wisdom, but it goes against all the warnings of Scripture. We do not win people to Christ without the truth or without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not in methods that are prohibited by the word. Now, here, here's the real point that piqued my interest. Piper took the same tack that I would take in refusing the supper to an unbeliever. Now, the first would, of course, be the warnings of Scripture against it. But then this, and, and I'd like to read it to you. Piper said, yes, 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 the Lord's Supper points unbelievers to Christ and makes crystal clear that they are not participants in it. In Christ, they are not participants in forgiveness. They are not participants in salvation. They're not participants in the second coming of the rescue from wrath. That's what the prohibition from participating communicates as they watch us enjoy Jesus. It communicates. We want you. We want you in watching this to see what you are missing. And then Piper said again, it's cruel to invite an unbeliever to the supper. It's cruel because it exposes them to the consequences of the warning. To eat unworthily is to invite death. And this is my point. No matter whose feelings we hurt with the truth, no matter whose feelings we hurt when we stand on the word of God, we want them to hurt so badly that they'll do nothing but turn to Christ for the remedy. You see, the gospel, what we are told to do, the gospel and salvation belong to God. And the doctrines of grace teach the absolute sovereignty of God. The gospel is for the glory of God. And whenever we start to use worldly wisdom to win people, or we try to pry ourselves into some small credit for our belief, then we foolishly upend the marvelous, meticulous, matchless, grace of God. And in this church, we will not do it. You pray for the strength, strength of our leadership, that this church will stay true to the word and we will glorify God until we take our last breath. And then we meet God wholly sanctified, glorified and serving him perfectly forever. And until then, be a prayer warrior. Put each piece of the armor on with prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we receive from your word. And as we've spoken today about the marvelous doctrines of grace that open to us such a, a, a high view of God, exaltation of our Savior, glorifying you, our Father, we thank you, Lord, for revealing that truth to us and, and helping us to see that throughout the entire book of Ephesians, that that teaching is set before us in every single chapter from beginning to end. It's all about what's done in your power, not in what we do by ourselves. And so we must depend on you from the very inception of our salvation, our being chosen before the foundation of the world so that it might exclude anything that we might add to it or claim because of it. It's all done by you. And then it's worked out in time by your power. And the only thing that we can do is surrender to that power. Lord, help us to see that, understand it, bless our people. And then as we talk about being prayer warriors, this is how we connect to your power. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us this means, a personal means, that we can, we can talk with you 
as friend to friend, and then also in complete reverence, knowing that you are God and you always do what is best for us. Help us, Lord, to obey your word. Always obey your word. And as we end this series on Christian warfare, help us to understand where the power to fight comes from. It only comes from you using the means that you tell us to employ. Help us to be faithful to it. And we ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I I would like to conclude our time today by giving you a a benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'd like you uh, just to notice that uh, this also includes a plea for prayer, prayer for leadership, prayer for those who teach you the word of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 8, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, and whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many in our behalf. And this is what we truly desire. In all the difficulties, all the troubles that we have, pray for each other. And as Paul says, pray for all saints. And he says, also pray for me. And I'll tell you that as well. Pray for me. And I hope you will this week. Take care. We hope to see you soon. God bless you. And uh, let's stand for Christ. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.